Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are joined by Michelle Weitzel. Michelle recently received her PhD in political science from the New School for Social Research in New York. And her research brings topics in politics relating to conflict, security, and political violence into conversation with the sensory world. She is currently working on a book manuscript entitled Drones, Sirens, and Prayer Calls, Unheard Consequences of a Politics of Sound. This spring, she will also be joining the University of Basel as a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Critical Urban Studies. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, would you like to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your research interests? Um, sure, of course. Yeah, um, let's see. I, I grew up on and around American military bases overseas. So barricades, ID cards, bomb drills, security protocols, all that sort of thing was very much a part of my normal elementary and high school experience. Um, at the time, I didn't really think much about it, but when I returned to graduate school, I started questioning the impact of that sort of immersive exposure um, on my sort of political attitudes and worldviews. And I got really interested in the points of intersection between daily personal experience and large sort of state or transnational political projects. Um, so in my research, I tried to rethink current approaches to governance and security and, and conflict, and generally sort of street politics. So sort of everyday politics as it's experienced by normal people? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so how do you go about studying these experiences? Well, so one way I try to get at the empirical workings of everyday politics is to trace the way the human body is conscripted into frameworks of power and how state and transnational political projects play out in public space. So I draw attention to bodies and specifically our senses as a site of politics and analyze how states or other actors harness senses for political gain. And, you know, I mean, this occurs in a variety of, of psychological and physical ways. Great. And that leads in well to the interesting article you recently published in Milk's special issue titled Engineering Affect, Street Politics and the Micro Foundations of Governance. Uh, in the article, you explore sensory approaches and practices of state power uh, in the context of the social movements of the Arab uprisings. Uh, your article focused particularly on the role of the emotional aspects of street protests. And I was wondering if you might be willing to give us some background on affect and emotion in the social movement literature in general, uh, and what gaps you see in it or what gaps you see yourself responding to. Sure. Scholars are... Um increasingly trying to understand the role of feelings in politics because we're convinced of their importance, but not always sure precisely how to measure the salience of collective feeling or analyze them. Mm -hmm. um, so in the Melg article, one of the things I wanted to do was to draw attention to a cleavage in the way that scholars have approached research on political feelings. Um, affect theory, which a lot of people probably know from um, you know, Brian Masumi's work, which sort of began in the early 2000s, differentiates affect from emotion. And uh, Musumi sort of posits that affect is non-cognitive or automatic, sort of in the sense of a reflexive involuntary reaction. And this conceptualization understands affect as being prior to uh, forms of knowledge like emotion that interact with cultural meaning. But 
a lot of political science and political scientists simply conflates affect and emotion without thinking through sort of the distinctions in the ways these feelings are triggered or how they variously you know, impact politics or political behavior. I think it's right that affect and emotion are closely intertwined and that insisting on their separation too vehemently creates a false binary, but some analytical utility and precision um, can still be found in considering them separately as well. Uh, So in the article, you write about how specific ambient triggers during the uprisings, uh, like the sounds of shots fired or chanting, or I think you even mentioned the stamping of feet in Tahrir Square, uh, how they triggered both physical and psychological reactions and attitudes in the crowds. Yes, these bodily reactions to things like shots fired or stamping feet are closely linked to emotions because they bring the physical and the psychological together. Scholars often think of emotions as conscious feelings that are more anchored in cultural meaning and language, and they contrast that with affect, which is imagined as physical. Um, I show that the senses are one way in which we can understand connections between affect and emotion. To show basically that what we think of as cognitive reasoning is always already distinctly embodied. One term for this can be embodied cognition. The embodied mode of knowing and knowledge production is what I analyze in the context of the Arab uprisings. Uh, That's really interesting. Um, But I wonder, um, my personal sensory experience with gunshots or protest slogans uh, might vary quite significantly from you or someone else standing beside me. Uh, How does embodied cognition work when it comes to crowds or groups? Yeah, well, scholars differ in their approaches to this question. So Jonathan Mercer, for example, writes about how group identity is predicated on socially constructed emotional categories, right? So um, other scholars of emotion and IR, like Emma Hutchinson, look at the ways that emotions are represented in society or representational practices that sort of bind communities together. That's a little bit of a different take. In my own research on street politics, I tune into material environmental stimuli that are perceived both individually and collectively by emplaced sensory bodies. And in your article, you single out the auditory realm as being particularly conducive to manipulating effective control and social protests. Uh, This is a very unique approach. um, And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you decided to use sound uh, as your focus of analysis. (laughs) Yeah, sound... um... Sound is great as an object of analysis. It it surrounds us, it penetrates our bodies, and together with the other senses, it constitutes an essential element of embodied cognition that frames how we understand our world. Of course, sound um, you know isn't more important than the other senses. It works together with sight and touch and smell and taste and even other things like balance or time. Um, but sound is also a force that's easily produced and propagated in public. Um, so it. It's, it's a ready tool of effective coercion in that sense. And this coercion may be harnessed in the service of domination or resistance. Uh, could you maybe give us an example of that? Yeah, sure. Um, in the article, let's see. Um, in the article, I talk about sounds that erode physical differences between people and, and in that process sort of transform collectivities. So the street protests that swept the Arab world in 2010 through 2012 were really physical affairs. People were out in the streets, standing, sitting, sharing food, um, spending often hours upon hours together. And of course, one of the ways that they passed the time and also voiced their political demands was by singing and chanting. And I wanted to better understand how these audio acts impacted the politics of the situation. 
And so for this, do you analyze the songs and the slogans? Oh, good question. Yeah. I mean, I do look at the semantic content of songs and slogans, yes. But my primary focus was what on basically on, on what the sound itself did to the effective body. Behavioral scientists think that collective synchronous movement weakens psychological boundaries between the self and others, and that it enables identification or a sense of commonality with others. So acting in sync, whether we're marching or singing or dancing, as people were doing in the streets during the uprisings, actually enabled groups to mitigate the free rider problem and help them coordinate in a context where action was potentially dangerous or costly. So since this is what interested me, I focused on the specifically sonic aspects of the experience and less on the semantic or language-based acts. If you think about it, joining voices together is a foundational part of many organizations that seek to build cooperation. Um, drill sergeants lead troops in song during basic training exercises. Um, or maybe church congregations singing together. Right, exactly. Yeah, we have a rich corpus of songs from, from church, from sailors who rode together at sea, or from people who work on the factory line. Great. Well, I thought it might be nice to listen to one of these clips that you analyze in the article. Um, I have for us today the chanting crowd of anti-regime protesters um, that was recorded in Syria in Hama, actually, in 2011. And you write that their chant captures the rhythmic energy, volume, and tempo uh, of many of the demonstrations during that time. Yeah, this is a really great clip. It really gives a sense of the mood. I've had that rhythm stuck in my head since I first listened to this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's incredibly catchy. The refrain translates to, come on, get out, Bashar, calling for the removal of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. So the provenance of this, this protest song is, is complicated, actually, but just listening to the tempo and the rhythm, whether or not you understand the words, gives us a fair amount of information. Um, this was a setting in which bodies were packed tightly together in an urban plaza grouped around a man who was leading and organizing the crowd with this sort of fabulous drumbeat. The chant is set up in a call and response pattern, so people don't need to know the lyrics in advance. And it's made up of, of mostly short, repetitive rhymes, so both the words and the pattern and rhythm are easy to remember, and basically anyone can join in, even if they don't feel like they're good singers or have a musical background. Thomas Trino has a great book, um, The Social Life of Music, where he talks about these sorts of themes in, in more detail. But the, the sonic format is really inclusive, and that's helpful. Uh, right. So, so participants don't feel like they'll be singled out. Yeah. Um, yeah, individuals gain a sense of safety, and, and I would say even power, by amalgamating into the collective sound. Right. So the, the rhythm or the patterning of the voices can actually sort of impact the event. Yeah, it can affect political behavior, although the longevity of this sort of effect is very hard to assess. Collective voicing um, or physical synchrony in the street protests like literally aligns bodies in the street. Individuality is, is temporarily kind of suppressed or sublimated as people focus their attention on each other to perceive cues related to tempo and rhythm and energy and affect or emotional response. So being in a group like this can actually synchronize breathing, almost like being in a choir. 
Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so collective voicing literally like sings a new subjectivity into existence, one that's focused on a common objective and that's, te again, temporarily unriven by class or religion or political ideology. This can be in incredibly powerful in the context of, of uh, street protests. Great. Um, so that's an example of affect being harnessed in the service of a politics of resistance. Uh, but you argue in your article that states or elite political actors also engineer affect or use sound in pursuit of their political projects. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that? Of course, yeah. Um, state and security actors understand the latent potential for disorder when people gather in large numbers in public. So obviously censorship of the soundscape plays a big role in top-down efforts to control territory and populations. Um, just this month, um, Egypt's state-run musician syndicate banned Maraganat, which is a popular style of street music. And this is nothing new. Really, since the beginning of recorded sound, states have had an interest in shaping aesthetic norms to comport with a particular conception of the public good. But states, um, states also have an interest in, in training affective responses among citizens. Um, what do I mean by this? This can be relatively innocuous, like having kids sing the national anthem in schools or at official events, or it can be very targeted, like when citizens are disciplined to respond um, in particular ways to sirens or alarms. And the other, other sort of side of this is that it's not only ambient sound that states seek to control. Bodily sound and human voice are increasingly important in biometric surveillance systems. Right. Uh, I think you had an example of this in your article. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a funny example, actually. In 2005, a Tunisian rapper, Ferid Mezni, um, released the anti-regime song L'Abid Fitarkina, which is open-air prison. Uh, he released it online. And the song addresses issues like police brutality, humiliation, and boredom, talking about um, you know what's now pre-revolutionary Tunisia. Um, so the Tunisian authorities wanted to catch him, to put pressure on him, to get him to stop singing these sort of anti-regime songs, and purportedly organized a roundup of rappers, and they brought these guys into a police station and forced them to rap the lyrics to Abed Fitarkina while using voice recognition software. Um, and it was an attempt to try to, to identify and, and catch Mesny, essentially. Oh, wow. essentially. Um, so it's an unusual example, but it reveals the state's interest in using a citizen's sensory body in the service of a state's political agenda. Great. Well, I think that's an interesting note for us to leave off with today. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about your fascinating research. Thanks so much for having me, Ezra, and for hosting the talk. Um, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you. No, thank you again for coming on. And thank you to everyone who listened in. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast.